Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. There's a lot of images that, are, that try to capture the central message of the gospel and of the whole story of salvation. Or you could use father and child. God's a father and he's the prodigal son imagery, bringing his children back into his home. You could use shepherd and sheep imagery. All of them are trying to get at a very similar thing. But, there's, but all of them lack. I mean, we're dealing with an infinite mystery of God with all of his life and love and goodness. But one mystery, one analogy is the least inadequate. So if all the analogies are inadequate, one is the least inadequate. It's the best one we got. And it's the analogy of marriage or spousal love. It begins, the whole story begins in the, in the garden, paradise. And paradise isn't a man or woman by themselves, it's a married couple in love. And it's this union of masculinity and femininity that seems to culminate the union of so many complementarities, light, darkness, day, night, sea, earth, flying creatures, walking creatures. All of creation seems to be created in this complementarity, climaxing in the male and female called to become one. And it's at that point that God says, there's my image. That is an image of me in the world. And it's at that point that he says, very good. Sin enters. All right, and we lose a lot of paradise, but not everything of paradise is lost. Because we say at every, ma at every uh, marriage uh, ceremony, we say in there that it's the one blessing not forfeited by the fall or the flood, namely spousal love and the family that's generated from there. That image continues to have some power, even if diminished and a little twisted. It still has a captivating power over our hearts and minds to call us back to God's original plan of paradise. When he speaks to Israel through the prophets, they're committing idol worship, right? They're worshiping idols, they're unfaithful to God, they're turning away from the Torah and the teachings. And more times than not, of course, he uses the image of a father, a shepherd. But oftentimes he uses the image of a bride committing adultery to her husband, husband in this case being God and the bride being Israel. And so he's always calling her back saying, come back to me. I will allure you to myself and speak tenderly to you. See, once again, it's, it's the power of spousal love. And the power is precisely the tender intimacy that involves the spouses, that tenderness that tends to awaken the heart. It culminates in the Old Testament in our first reading today, which is called the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. You could say that this might be the soundtrack of Christianity. And we hear, Hark, my lover comes to me. My lover is like this. My lover speaks to me. And of these words of such beauty and tenderness, winter is past. The rains are over, flowers appearing, a, a beautiful from barrenness to fruitfulness. And then you hear this, let me see you. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet 
and you are lovely. The beautiful thing about the book of Song of Songs is it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God's name. There's no reference to the name of God, and yet it's quite literally in the middle of the Bible physically, but it's the book that many, many Christian mystics and saints will quote and use to articulate what it's like to be in deep communion with God. What's it like to have Jesus so deep inside your soul? They say, well, you know, he, he just thinks you're sweet and lovely, and his voice awakens us, and he comes to me and allures me and draws me in. John the Baptist, who we heard a lot about during this Advent season, He's always saying repent and all these things, but some of the things he says too, which you don't hear of, is he goes, oh, I'm just the best man. The bridegroom is coming. Then when Jesus shows up, his first miracle is at a wedding feast. He dies on the cross. We have it translated as it is finished, but on his lips he's saying it is consummated. In Latin, consummantum est meaning his gift of self to his spouse, the church, his total gift of self is finally being given on the cross. In the book of Revelations, heaven is opened, and it says the church is coming forth like a bride bedecked with jewels for her bridegroom. And it says this is the wedding feast of the Lamb. So once again, spousal imagery. And then it gets all summed up in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 5 where he says, For this reason a man will leave his mother and father and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That, of course, is a reference to the book of Genesis, meaning how things were created. But then he says, This is a great mystery, and I mean in regards to Christ and the church. What the Holy Spirit is saying to us through St. Paul is that all the spousal love that we have in our hearts, all the desires and longings, all the attraction between male and female, all of that is actually a little revelation of the ultimate plan that God wants to marry us through Jesus so that by becoming one with us, he can fill us, the bride, with eternal life and we can bear fruit for the whole world. Now, I don't want to get overly moral, and it is a daily Mass, so I know I have to land the plan here, but can you see the beauty of male and female complementarity coming together? It's because at the heart of the Christian faith is a marriage. We're about to celebrate it on Sunday, on Christmas, where heaven and earth will be wed together. Divinity and humanity will be brought together. Two differences being brought into one. And then that's offered us to share in this intimate union through communion with Christ at every Mass and living a life of holiness. Perhaps now we can see a little bit of the logic on why the church does not support same-sex marriage, why the church is against so many acts of misuses of our sexuality, because what's at stake is the central mystery for Christians— that when Christ came to the earth, he came as a bridegroom to unite himself to his bride so that the two can be one. 
if that image or icon or poetic gesture in creation can be redefined or destroyed or has really not much meaning except what we give it, well then we don't have the understanding, language, and insight to enter into the eternal mystery. Now you also might understand why Pope Francis, why when same-sex marriage was being legalized in Buenos Aires where he was bishop, the first thing he did is went to cloistered nuns' convents and asked them to pray because he said this is an attack from the devil. He didn't see it from political lenses. He saw that what was at stake was the Christian revelation and the gospel and that there was a force against it keeping us confused and hurting. And this is why St. Paul will say in the book of Romans, St. Paul came, uh, Jesus came to grant us the redemption of our bodies. He says bodies, and bodies are male and female. The redemption, meaning the healing, the transformation, the reawakening to God's plan in paradise so that we could live again as male and female and know the fullness of life. These aren't political terms. We need to... We need to sacrifice on the altar today being American and resurrect as Catholics and disciples, okay? What we really need is to recognize the Bible is communicating a love story that's summed up in five words. God wants to marry us. And if we don't understand the biblical vision of what marriage really means and is, we'll never understand the good news of why a God would come to die and rise and say the eternal consummation of my plan begins at every Mass, and is completed in heaven. This is what Christmas is all about. This is why the church gives us the reading from the Song of Songs on the few days before Christmas. And so let's take a moment of prayer.